Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, a.k.a. Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. A baby Fahodier, African liberation. For no other purpose, we say a baby Fahodier to keep the concept alive for future generations. I'm Gullah Jack. I'm here with brothers Amos and Makaru. The day's date is June 7, 2020, or 6260. We're going to start with the NFL, which in a real sense is a microcosm of the macrocosm of larger society. Many fans want the players with their helmets on and their mouths shut. When the humanity of an articulate player emerges from beneath their uniforms, people can't take it. The attitude is shut up and play. Now, with the reality of the COVID virus ravaging the world, the United States in particular, which is the epicenter of the virus, the mantra is shut up and die. Suffice it to say, the safety of the players, coaches, and various medical staff are being flagrantly disregarded for money, politics, and expediency. Black lives have never mattered in a system that we characterize as unfeathered capitalism. Bibi Fahodier, African Liberation Media family. Uh, thank you for that, Gullah Jack. The, uh, the hypocritical uh, expediency and vanity-oriented NFL admitted that they were wrong to stop players from protesting when Colin Kaepernick started it back in, what was it, 2016? And, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's just so obvious that the, the current move by the league in the face of these continuing protests, the day, the day being 14 straight days of protests over the uh, killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, it's just so clear that the league, the, these uh, Neanderthals that, that own these teams are clearly driven by vanity and expediency and hoping to save their season. Uh, so now it's like, oh, wow, we never should have whiteballed Kaepernick. They didn't say that. Of course, they would never admit that, but they admitted that that they were wrong. I mean, there's just there's just no limits to the hypocrisy, and it just it just always goes back to, you know, Dr. King's four questions: cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And conscience is never an issue with all all of these. Uh, people that, that that we see trying to come to the forefront to get get ahead of this uh, grassroots youth-led 
decentralized uh, protests that are taking place all over the world now. So we have to stay focused, though, on uh, Abibi Fahodie, African Liberation Media. I want to go back to case that we started discussing about four weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, and that is the the killing of Ahmaud Arbery uh, in uh, Brunswick, Georgia. And there's some there's some new details emerged, and this is playing out pretty much the way I predicted that it would. The McMichaels and William Bryan chased Brother Arbery, just like George Washington chased Africans on a slave patrol. I don't know how many people know that George Washington's first job was as a slave patroller. Uh, this is before he married into a wealthy family, the Custis family, Martha Custis, and suddenly became one of the largest owner of African people in the state of Virginia. Prosecutor Jesse Evans of Cobb County opened a recent hearing for the McMichaels saying that the evidence would show the McMichaels chased, hunted down, and ultimately executed Albury. You know, this is what I said, that they that they were doing all alone. William Roddy Bryan told the police that McMichaels said effing inward after three blasts from McMichael's shotgun left Albury dead. So as uh, as I predicted, William Roddy Bryan, a weak, ignorant person of European descent, is folding up like a tent and trying to save his rear end. The McMichaels had already tried to head off Aubrey once when Bryan joined the pursuit. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent said Bryan tried to block Aubrey in as Travis McMichael drove around the block with his father. Brian made several statements about trying to block him, block him in, and using his vehicle to try to stop him. Dow said, this is the Georgia uh, agent, uh, GBI agent, Dow. His statement was that Mr. Albury kept jumping out of the way and moving around the bumper and actually running down into a ditch into, in an attempt to avoid his truck. At one point, Albury was heading out of Satilla Shores, the Satilla Shores neighborhood where the defenders live, but the McMichaels forced him to turn back into the neighborhood and run past Brian, the agent said. That is when uh, Brian struck Albury with his truck. And uh, although he was hit, uh, Brother Amar kept running uh, with the McMichaels in pursuit. As Travis and Gregory McMichael attempted to head him off, Albury returned and, and rode and, and ran past the truck again. So you can see here's a brother that's literally out there running for his life, just like uh, Harriet Tubman was doing, just like Frederick Douglass was doing, uh, just like Dangerfield Newby, who escaped uh, chattel slavery and joined John Brown at Hoppers Ferry. The first person killed at Hopper's Ferry, as a matter of fact, Dangerfield Newby. Should be on, you know, everybody should know about Dangerfield Newby. He should be regarded as one of our heroes, an African who picked up arms to try to end chattel slavery. Uh, so, you know, this, so this, to me, 
you know, this is really uh, blustering the case against the McMichaels. Uh, I, I really expect uh, Brian to become a, a, a witness and testify for the state in exchange for reduced time. But but you can see clearly he's he's definitely guilty. I mean, you, you run into a man with your truck, obviously you're trying to kill him or certainly you're trying to injure him. I mean, that's definitely aggravated assault. And, you know, this chase, they say, went on for four minutes, but it sounded like it went on longer than that. And this brother just ran, 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 you know, you know, he, luckily he was, he was a, a avid jogger and he was in, in, a, in good enough shape to run. But eventually he just decided, you know, I, I got to fight for my life. I mean, but that being said, it does not necessarily mean that a Glenn County jury will find uh, these people guilty. That, that, that's still up in the air. But, you know, this evidence uh, that has been given to them by William Roddy Bryan, I, I, I think definitely, uh, you know, helps their case. And, you know, we'll just have to see, you know, how much white supremacy impacts uh, the decision that the, a jury will make, you know, once once a jury uh, is impaneled. Uh, you know, I'll stop there and come back with some other things. Yeah, brother, I know uh, as you gather your thoughts, you have some um, additional information in addition to Mr. Aubrey, David McAtee, Patrick Carroll, and some information regarding the proposed March on Washington that Reverend, in the quotes, Sharpton, a.k.a. King Rat, has indicated that the Aubrey family uh, will lead. Uh, Brother Amos. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, the Floyd family. The uh, George Floyd family, according to Sharpton, of uh, the Action Network organization has stated that the Floyd family will lead this march. Brother Amos. Yeah, Marco, you definitely did call this when we talked about it. I believe it was about three weeks ago. You said that they probably arrested him so that they can get him to talk, and that's exactly what he did. He pulled out information that he had not previously said in previous statements about the language that Travis McMichael used after shooting brother Ahmaud Arbery. And I think this is definitely a game changer in the case. And it will probably further lead to at least a conviction of one of them for his murder. I think when you look at all of the things that happened on the 23rd and when you look at now this information coming up, coming out, what it does is it gives you a clearer indication of a possible ulterior motive or a possible motivation that could have been based on race. Now we know that the jury will be the jury will be predominantly white, um, so I would not be shocked 
if they were found not guilty. I'm just say that I wouldn't be shocked. Um, but I think that it would be massive outrage, even probably more than what you're seeing now with the protests and the riots that's going on. Um, even though we know some of the protests that have taken place or some of the vandalism that have taken place looks to be somewhat sponsored uh, by different groups that a lot of people have talked about like Antifa and others. But there will be a lot of natural rage and emotion if there's a not guilty verdict in all three of these recent cases with Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and also Brother George Floyd. So yeah, that, that, that's a good that's a good point, uh, brother. Almost that the you know the fact that these these protests have gone on a, you know in this country for fourteen days and and now around the world, and we want to talk about some of the things that are happening in Africa a little bit later. Uh, you know, which you know it's good to see protests in London and Paris and Berlin. But the most important protest for us would be those that are taking place on the continent of Africa. Uh, but 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 that is a good point because see that 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 becomes that becomes a factor. You know the this this rage becomes becomes a pressure point where you know they say, look, man, if we don't do this, what is going to happen? So. That's a very good point. I, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up, uh, almost, because I hadn't, you know, hadn't uh, hadn't hadn't gotten to that, you know, thought process. Go go <laughs> ahead, brother. Continue what you were saying. Well, one of the assessments that has been made uh, in the mainstream media, I'll read to you a title of an article uh, that recently was released, and this is coming from uh, the Los Angeles Times says that George Floyd protests have created a multicultural movement that's making history. The protests have mobilized many non-blacks who hadn't yet been involved in racial justice causes. Black protesters say it's a sign of the movement's impact. Now, we know that multiculturalism is not necessarily a good thing for African people. Normally, multiculturalism means that you are, in some ways, um, sacrificing your own culture to fit in with the rest of the group of people around the world. Some people may say that there's nothing wrong with that. But in regards to African culture, it always seems that Af the African's culture is always the one that is the most suppressed and we try to emulate everybody else, whether they be Europeans, Asians, Indians, Mexicans. Um, we often shun and neglect our own culture for all of these other races and ethnic groups of people. So we have to be very weary of this type of effect from these protests and, and know how to navigate with this happening. 
as you stated earlier, we have to keep our eyes on the BB for Hodier and African liberation. And in doing that, we can't get sucked into another uh, integrationist or multicultural or assimilationist movement or platform that will not really benefit African people the way that a true uh, African-centered focus movement would, uh, in my opinion. So I definitely think we have to be mindful. And yes, it's good when whites call each other out on racism, you know, but at the same time, we can't have our dependency on anybody else but ourselves. And this is something that has happened to us in the past where we have gone along with the platforms and the plans of other people only to end up with the short end of the stick in something that negatively impacted our communities where we thought initially that it looked like it was positive. Yeah, we're talking about uh, assimilation, which historically has resulted in annihilation in these processes. Uh, you know, to articulate or to paraphrase what Dr. Ture told us, in these processes, you always want to maintain your uh, cultural institutions, your life patterns, and your traditions. I mean, I can clearly understand um, whites becoming involved. You know, the murder was so clear. It's not an isolated incident. just been a plethora of murders. Black men, you know, over the past 30 years, I have noticed many whites with T-shirts on, Tupac Shakur T-shirts, and uh, I've seen white and black congregants get together, if nothing else, but to smoke weed. Uh, you know, it's just a confluence of a lot of different issues. Um, the ideology of the of the system itself has been exposed for all to see, you're talking about 50 million people unemployed, the indifference, uh, Betsy DeVos stealing from COVID-19 resources to finance private schools, and the hypocrisy of the system is, is highly visible. You know, perhaps this was a straw that uh, broke the camel's back. Um, you know, of course, we have... Our struggle has been aided and abetted by Charles Gary. We can go back to uh, the great John Brown, uh, who Harriet Tubman would have joined had she not getting sick, gotten sick. You know, Thaddeus Stevens, who would have impeached Lincoln for being uh, so milquetoast in dealing with the South. When asked, what do you do with the black slaves, uh, Stevens intoned, Give them 48 acres in a mule and leave them the hell alone. So, uh, you know, even the great X, of course, um, had some regrets when he rebuffed a white student who wanted to aid and abet our struggle. But above and beyond any contribution they can make, and we mentioned this on African Liberation Media, they can organize in the white community. To paraphrase Macaroo, that's what white supremacy is. You know, conversely, this is my comment to brothers, you know, don't ask me for a dime, brother, to go down to 
uh, South Charlotte, uh, Ballantyne. You know, I was taught by my grandmother, you know, go where the getting is. You know, I'm trying to make a living just like you. Go with white folk uh, and, you know, ask them. So, you know, uh, it's the same way we should uh, treat white folk in terms of our response to them when they ask, what can I do? You know, I won't be convinced until there's a mass movement by white people against white supremacy in the white community. You know, it's easy it's easy to come out and, you know, and march, you know, with us, you know, in 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 sit in times like this. And, you know, I don't doubt that in the in the process of just, you know, the process of struggle itself. When when black people engage in struggle, some white people are going to be radicalized. I mean, that's how you wind up with a, a Maryland buck who, you know, is willing to uh, help break Asada Shakur out of jail. Uh, and, you know, Sylvia Barondini and David Gilbert, who was working with uh, Matula Shakur to secure funds via arms. So, you know, you have those, you have those situations and, you know, I, so people should just, to me, that should be the litmus test. That should be the litmus test. You you organize a mass movement against white supremacy in the white community. And, you know, then we got something to talk about. I mean, you know, we do have the examples of Richardson Taylor who put Gabriel Prosser aboard his boat in Richmond and took him to Norfolk to try to help him escape and when and when the boat arrived in Norfolk, two Negroes, I don't know their names, you know, we know the name of George Wilson and Peter Prelu, who betrayed Denmark Vesey. The white man helps Gabriel Prosser escape from Richmond to Norfolk. I don't know what where he was going from Norfolk. Uh maybe to Haiti. I don't know. He may have been able to catch a boat to Haiti. And then two Negroes recognized them and, 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 and ran to their masters or ran to the police and said, you know, that's that man that tried to overthrow the government of Virginia and, you know, capture Governor Monroe. So, but anyway, but, you know, on the, on, on the multicultural front, I mean, we, we, we see, we are, we are African centered, holistic thinkers, African centered, holistic, critical thinkers. And so when people are, you know, waving these banners, you know, then then you have to also consider things like this, uh, this incident that happened in the notorious Cicero, Illinois. And I titled this, this is how the white supremacists plan to continue their domination in the U.S. once they become a minority, use collaborators of color to do their dirty work. We already know they have numerous collaborators in our community, many of whom we've discussed here before. Latino leaders in Chicago are calling for a truce after it, after it was reported that black residents were being attacked in some Latino, Latino neighborhoods by local gang members who allegedly offered to help police deter protesters. 
Another witness video shared on Twitter shows Latino men standing at the corner of Kedzie and Cermak with baseball bats and throwing bricks at cars driven by black people as they pass by. On Monday evening, this was this past Monday, yet another Facebook video showed a group of people with bats and metal pipes gathering near the intersection. Uh, Non-black Latinx gangs are armed with bats and machetes, said uh, Luz Chavez, who shot the video. Any car that passes with black people in it are being stoned. And uh, what this led to was uh, some very high tensions uh, as two people were killed, uh, including the alleged leader of the Latin Kings. They, they are claiming that one of the one of the uh, black uh, organizations, I don't know, you know, which one, so I'm not going to call a name. You know, I don't know if it was Larry Hoover's people or Jeff Ford's people, but anyway, it may have been somebody else. Uh, so they retaliated by taking out the, the, the leader of the Latin Kings, the alleged leader of the Latin Kings, I imagine that would lead to further violence. And this came during a bloody week in Chicago, with Cicero being a suburb of Chicago, where 28 people had been killed and a, and a total of 127 people had been shot uh, during the week that started on May 31st and ended on June the 6th. So I point that out to, to say that, that whereas, you know, you do have you do have some examples, and uh, I'll I just I'll, I'll just give you one uh, one one positive example of uh, of, of people uh, working together. But like I said, to me, the, the litmus test, in my in my opinion, is white people organizing a mass movement against white supremacy in the white community. You know, will you know will that happen? In Crown Point, uh, Indiana. Um, uh, grew about 50 uh, people were engaged in a protest as they walked down the street. You know, there was a gauntlet, well, not necessarily a gauntlet, but there was the, this one side of the street was lined with white people with uh, automatic uh, weapons and other guns. And so, you know, they were they were out there for whatever reason, but it certainly wasn't uh, to support the people who were marching. Dr. King articulated the idea that politic raises the question, is it expedient? On television today, I observed many of the leaders of the Democratic Party dressed in Kentic cloth, mm. symbol, but no substance. I was reminded of P.W. Botha the notorious white supremacist from South Africa who dressed like a Zulu with the intent of garnering the votes from a populist tribe. Suffice it to say that there's no greater heresy than to do the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. I see it across party lines. Trump told a Republican leader that his father participated in the assassination of JFK. Trump went further to say that his wife, well, he spoke of this person's wife, this Republican leader's wife in derogatory terms. The leader's response was, Mr. Trump, 
can I have another term? The indignity of it all. Mm. Gentlemen, take it where you want to take it. Yeah, I saw that same that same imagery, Gullah Jack, of the whites and the Democrats kneeling in kente cloth trying to symbolize some type of honor towards George Floyd. But the interesting thing is that whites often they often criticize black people who wear kente cloth or they often demonize African culture and yet when a situation like this happens they go to wearing kente cloth thinking that that's going to somehow resonate with the majority of African Americans who the majority of African Americans hate Africa or have have a hatred for Africa many of them who say you know I have nothing to do with Africans. Some of them even would say that I'm not an African. I was already here. I'm a Native American. Yeah, the ADOS people. Right. So I thought that that was, that that was interesting. But I ca- I've kind of found it disrespectful in how they symbolized kneeling for for George Floyd. It seems to me that kneeling with somebody kneeling on his neck is how this brother lost his life. And then yeah, you go to his funeral and you put up these photo ops of you kneeling for eight minutes. To me, it's almost as if they're showcasing how this brother was killed. It'd be no different than somebody who was hung and was lynched and then you bring in the noose to their damn funeral. <laughs> how is that a symbol of respect? Well, how does that even resonate as some type of homage being paid to the way that this brother lost his life? I can understand the moment of silence, but to do the same act that was done to this brother to make him lose his life, I thought was egregious to me. Well, brother, it goes back to what Amon Wally said and message to the grassroots. You're a chump, you're a political chump. You know, where's the policy? I was just uh, reading one of the papers in, tele- in Texas today where uh, a police officer, actually more than one police, several police fired at a man in a case of mistaken identity a hundred yards away, killing the man. Okay, but yet were granted what uh, the term was used, qualified immunity. In terms of policy proposals, this is something that has to be looked at, you know, by the Democratic Party or whoever to uh, hold police more accountable. And see, that's the thing I think that a lot of people uh, misunderstand or don't understand is your last statement, hold them more accountable. That's been the, the primary problem with the American system from its foundation is that on paper, it seems as though this would be considered one of the greatest countries in the world. But in reality, laws only apply to certain people. And if, well, the, if, if the police, if the police were actually held accountable according to the laws, like everybody else, 
when somebody commits murder, more than likely they're going to go to prison and serve time. If police knew that they could be held accountable for these laws, then that's your police reform right there. I don't think it has anything to do with training or um, trying to get police to empathize with black people. I think it has to do with the law applying to police officers the same way that they apply to everybody else. The same way that they charge black people with crimes and we get convicted and sent to prison should be the same way white people should be charged with crimes and be convicted and sent to prison. And police officers should be charged when they commit these acts. And if more police officers knew that they could possibly spend 10 to 15 years in prison where they would have to fight for the rest of their life because people don't like cops in prison, then a lot of them would think twice about pulling a trigger and killing somebody because they knew it would be consequences to that action. Absolutely. But when they know that they can write a false police report and nothing's going to be done about it, when they can plant evidence and nothing's going to be done about it, when they can brutalize and harass people and nothing's going to be done about it, when they can shoot people, kill people, tase people, pepper spray people, and nothing's going to be done, done about it. And even in some cases where they can rape people and when they can find the women and nothing's going to be done, done about it, then it's going to continue to happen. So that's the... The answer and people are, are, are talking about, you know, defunding the police or taking away, you know, money from the police. But I don't really see that happening because we know why the police were originally put here is to protect white people. And I don't see white people giving up that protection uh, from being able to call the police when they find themselves in trouble. Yeah, protect property in particular, you know, uh, and. And we were, of, of course, the most valuable property in this country. Our ancestors were uh, from 1619 until, until 1865, and now they figured out other ways to do that. But, you know, what you were talking about was what Mumia, our brother Mumia Abu-Jamal, called the culture of immunity and impunity, which the police officers know that uh, they operate within. And that's why you get the same refrain every time an unarmed person of African descent is killed, doesn't matter whether it's 12-year-old, you know, Tamir Rice or whomever, they always say, I feared for my life. And that's the protection. That's the culture of impunity and immunity now so so the question becomes you know will if there is some legislation passed will it be enforced and we've seen how we've seen that mirror go round you know from you you could never you could not have a stronger set of laws not even compared to the laws that they have on the books today you could never have a stronger set of laws in this country than the laws that were passed by the radical Republicans between 1865 and about, let's say, 1873 or 74. You had the strongest civil rights laws ever in this country, and they were systematically overturned. I mean, to Ulysses S. Grant actually went to Congress, 
to lobby for the passage of the Ku Klux of what's no, what became known as the Ku Klux Klan Act. It was an act that would allow him to send federal troops into uh, the former Confederacy because the Confederates lost, but they won. And so, you know, you never have a, a stronger set of laws. You know, Amos Wilson, uh, you know, based on research done by our ancestor, uh, Lerone Bennett Jr., you know, talks about this in the falsification of African uh, consciousness. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we know these things, but but check this out. Check check this out. You, you know, uh, everybody saw the video of the uh, police, the two police officers in Buffalo uh, pushing this, uh, uh, the frail 75-year-old white man down, his head, you know, hitting the uh, concrete and he started bleeding and they they kept marching, you know, right over over top of him as if, it, you know, they were some of uh, Hitler or Mussolini's jackboots. Um, the two officers were were charged they were part of a, a special unit that, that was composed of 57 officers. All of the officers in that unit resigned in support mm-hmm. of the two police that were that were charged. They resigned from that unit. They didn't resign from the police force, but they resigned from the unit. Now, what they should have done was fired all of them right then. But, of course, they gave them, gave them jobs. But check this out. One Florida police organization has said that it will it will rehire those very officers accused of misconduct. And that offer is prompting outrage on Saturday. The Brevard County chapter of the Fraternal Order of Police posted a posted a message on Facebook addressed to the Buffalo Seven and the Atlanta Six saying that it was hiring. And of course, we know that the killer of Michael Brown Jr., Darren Wilson, was fired from one police force uh, in Missouri and then hired in Ferguson. Ferguson was a virtual police state for Africans. You could, They were finding Africans because their garbage wasn't picked up or their grass wasn't cut. I mean, what was going on in Ferguson was just, I mean, you, it, it, it may, has, may, may as well have been a P.W. both or a, pick both or somebody in uh Boston or someone in in uh in apartheid uh South Africa. And then uh Timothy Lowman who was fired from a police uh force. I mean, this is a guy that I forgot what his score, his cognitive skills score was something like forty out of one hundred or fifty out of one hundred, I mean And probably with anger issues. Ignorant, unintelligent with anger issues. And these guys get hired. They get hired. They, they they get hired. And so this this is this is part of the culture. Now, you know, I address this issue of of this call for you know the defunding the police, which is which is not going to happen. I mean, Minneapolis has said that uh, they were going to dismantle their police force, but it it will have to be replaced by something. And Here's what they will do. Here's what they will do. Here's how, here's how they will handle that. The black community will not be policed at all. And, you know, we, we, we saw this kind of, this pullback, you know, with, 
in 2014, you know, as police, as the uh, protests swept the country, uh, you know, after Michael Brown Jr. was killed and after Eric Garner was killed. And and so basically they will leave us to fend for ourselves. Now, that that could be fine if we can organize a Black Panther Party type of organization to, you know, to to carry on the duties. But but, you know, we are not there at this moment. What would it take to get there? I you know, I don't know. But but here's what I propose. Rather than something vague and confusing, because in, in just about every locale you 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 check out, they have a different idea of what defunding what defund the police means. So I said rather than something vague and confusing like defund the police, why not choose some crystal clear examples that facilitate injustices? Why not focus on defunding programs which contribute to the militarization of the U.S. police forces, such as the 1033 program, and which contribute to mass racial incarceration, such as the burn JAG grants that Michelle Alexander highlighted in the new Jim Crow? A bill was introduced in Congress in 2014 to defund the 1033 program, and 32 congressional black hypocrites, some of the, some of the ones who were probably up there kneeling in kente cloth today refused to support it they refused to support they had a chance don't know how, how how you know whether it would have carried both houses and whether obama would have signed it in the law but they had a chance in 2014 and 32 members of the congressional black caucus and i'm calling them congressional black hypocrites some of these very same people who would not vote to defund the 1033 program. And for those people who do not know, the 1033 program was created in the 1990s because the uh, world's largest uh, welfare program, the, the U.S. military industrial complex, uh, you know, they, you know they, they changed their underwear three times a day and discarded mm -hmm. them. And I think uh, uh, Jack and almost both know know the story uh, that uh, that I that I that I've told when we were working at, when I was a student at Malcolm X Liberation University, and we uh, had formed the African Liberation Support Committee to, to support our brothers and sisters who were engaged in armed struggle. We had a we had a connection with a person who collected uh, discarded army gear no military weapons, but other army gear that they just discarded. And we were able to collect that, crate it up, put it on a container and ship it to Dari Salaam for, for Limo. So what happens is that they discard. So, so now they're not just discarding, uh, you know, fatigues and boots and binoculars and they're discarding weapons, you know, M4s or AR-15s. They're discarding, um, armored personnel carriers, tanks. They just, Like I said, they change their underwear three or four times a day because they got a silver spoon, the U.S. taxpayers. And so they created a program in the 1990s after, you know, they'd they had all these wars, you know, beginning with, uh, what was it, Desert Storm and then um, uh, the, other, the other wars that, that they had going on. And so they created this program to give the surplus military gear to police departments 
in the United States. And so it started, I believe, under the Clinton administration. But Barack Obama became the number one provider of uh, surplus military equipment to police forces under the 1033 program. So let me pick up where I was. Um, by the time he left office, uh, President Obama had done more to militarize the police than any president. Pressure on Congress to defund 1033 should be a national priority. See, now this is something very practical. Uh, you know, I tell these young, a lot of young people, and, and, and we use the example from, from ancient Kemet. Imhotep had to build a step pyramid before Khufu could build a great pyramid. But some of these people want to start off trying to build a great pyramid, and they haven't even laid the foundation for the step pyramid. So there's a process for organizing, and, and, and it has to be about organization, as Kwame Ture said. But we see now, we see mass mobilization. We see a lot of mobilization. We don't see organization. Does the potential exist? Yes. So that's one example of something that they could focus on and put pressure on these uh, people in Congress who should have defunded this program a long time ago. Like I said, I don't know if it would have passed in 2014, but it's just absolutely pathetic that 32 members of the Congressional Black Caucus would not support it. And they probably wouldn't support it because Obama wanted to continue it. That's probably why. Because some of these people were the same people who they voted to fund the war on Libya. They voted against defunding uh, militarizing the police, a uh, burn jag, and the drug war on a black America. Of course, I learned this from reading uh, the New Jim Crow and taking the class, uh, Sister Patrice Funderburg's class on the New Jim Crow. Jim Crow, in the early 2000s in Tulia, Texas, a burn jag funded program enabled an undercover police officer to fabricate testimony in a series of racially targeted drug stings that led to the arrest and imprisonment of roughly 20% of the town's adult black population. So you had a corrupt police officer that was doing the, that was taking this money from this program, Burn Jag, and he was using it to literally, literally incarcerate the black population of this town. 20% of the population of the adult population of this town were mm. imprisoned by this corrupt police officer. Mm. So the, the, the program became under attack. Uh, they had been getting, you know, uh, various amounts every year. Uh, generally, I think starting, you know, with uh, uh, Clinton or, or uh, uh, W. Bush, they were getting about, uh, you know, 500,000 a year, something, something to that effect. Uh, no, a million, I'm sorry, million, 500 million. Uh, but by the last year of the Bush administration, the funding had fallen to about $170 million a year because there were some people who were saying this is just being being used to uh, for the drug war on uh, black America. However, here we go. In 2009, Burn Jag received a $2 billion infusion from guess who? Barack Hussein Obama in uh, in the, the stimulus program uh, uh, that the uh, the stimulus money that uh, was doled out by Congress in uh, in in 2009 this program received 
uh, $2 billion. So pressure should be put on Congress to defund Burn JAG because what has it done? It has contributed to mass racial incarceration. So and Obama, who was pro- criticized for not doing anything for black people, pretty much funded more black people being killed and locked up. Well, that's, there's, there, there's no other way to look at it. I'll tell you I mean, what's up. Go, go ahead, ahead brother. brother. No, go ahead. Well, it, I mean, Dick Cheney, I'm quoting Dick Cheney. He said that Barack Obama was assiduously following our policies. In other words, it, it, it was Bush, uh, you know, third and fourth term. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, and, and, and the, the Bush policies were, of course, you know, formed by the project for a new American century, the so-called neocons you know, which Dick Cheney was a member of, and they were the ones who got Dick Cheney as as Bush's uh, vice president. I mean, who knows if Bush even had a clue as, uh, you know, as to what as to what to do. But, uh, you know, they, you know, they, they, you know, pushed, uh, you know, these uh, particularly the war in Iraq, uh, you know, on, on this guy. And, and, and now uh, suddenly we see the reemergency, reemergence of Colin Powell, talking about uh trump telling lies this was the man who sat up there at the u.n and said saddam hussein had weapons of mass destruction <laughs> i mean listen you put all these people in a barrel they're the people written about in john 844 lying speeches that native tongue and paolo by the way today endorsed crime bill biden but what i'm saying here what i'm saying here the reason why i point these things out is because Even though this is about reforms, every revolutionary that I have studied, and there may be some that I don't know about, started with reforms, and their reforms were either rejected or they were overturned or, you know, they were hijacked or whatever. You know, Castro, the lawyer, right? Mao Zedong, Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara, the doctor, Kwame Ture, and all these guys started on the Freedom Ride. So... I mean, but but what I'm saying is that you have to hit them with something specific. Now, I, I know a lot of people, are you talking about Obama? Obama is no longer president. Since when did the, did the effect of the policies of a president end when the president leaves office? I mean, the, the segregated patterns of housing that uh, plagued the United States for years, you know, originated in the Roosevelt administration. We have brothers and sisters right now who are still in jail because of the COINTELPRO program that started under Lyndon uh, Johnson, at least it started targeting black people. Well, it really started under, under Kennedy, transferred to Johnson, and then escalated under Nixon. These guys have been out of office, you know, uh, 70, 60, 50 years, but their policies are still having an impact. So, you know, these are two of the impacts of, uh, of, of Barack Obama that have neg- negatively in- in- impacted the black community. But I'm just trying to give these young people some examples. Okay, this is something that you can specifically target rather than throwing something vague 
that a lot of people don't understand. Go ahead, brothers. Well, I know we only got about. Go ahead, Jack. Well, a quick statement. Uh, G. Edgar Hoover lives. I mean, COINTELPRO exists only in another form. So, you know, clearly uh, the black community is still targeted, neutralized, and rendered impotent in terms of its leadership. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know we only have 10, 10 minutes or so left, but I I wanted to discuss another issue that I'm seeing in our community. And we talked about this before in the past in relation to being able to discern what's real and what's not real. And right now, in a situation like this with the death of George Floyd, you have people white people and even black people surprisingly that are putting out information saying that the death of George Floyd was a psyop or a false flag or even a hoax. Hmm. And it's really disappointing that not only are people putting out these videos, but you have a large sector of our community that is actually reposting and pushing this idea that George Floyd's death was somehow a staged event. (laughs) Invariably, you're going to have this madness. And one of the things we really had to become serious about is how we discern reality, how we take in information. I know that a lot of people, I know it's easy for us to walk downhill or to slide downhill than to walk uphill. It's easier to, to, to learn about the conspiracy or it's easier to learn about something that's outside of this world that's not based in a reality that we have to deal with head on, front and center right now. And we gotta start challenging people more critically when they present this type of information to us, we have to say, what factual information can you provide to prove to me that what you're saying is accurate? And if you're not able to do that, then we have to start unsubscribing from these people and stop listening to the information that they're putting out. Even though a broken clock can be right two times a day, we can't spend all of our time buying into information that's not going to advance us as a race. You know, almost one one thing that I that I really wonder <laughs> is how many of these people are actually on the payroll of our enemies because they are spreading just mass confusion. I mean, I mean, you know, Goebbels couldn't do a better job of propaganda, propagandizing issues than some of these YouTube personalities who popped up from nowhere, who have been given platforms on uh, various people's channels. And now now that they've created their own brand, they are completely off the chain. And this, uh, you know, one particular, you know, this guy, he's on the air calling people MFs and the N-word. And 
people are listening to this and then reposting what this fool is saying. I wonder. I wonder. It just smacks to me, really and truly, of propaganda that would be produced, you know, by our enemies because what is one of their greatest weapons right now? Confusion versus clarity. That's one of their greatest weapons. Bobby Wright said, there's only one battle left, the battle for the black mind. Jamil el at the Free Huey rally in February 1968. They want the minds of our young people. J. Edgar Hoover even put it right there. Point number five, objective number five of the of the COINTELPRO program. We cannot afford these to allow these youth, you know, to be influenced, you know, by the Kwame Therese and the Jamil Elamines, the Huey Newtons of the world, the Fred Hamptons of the world. So, I mean, I don't know almost. I mean, I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying, just based on the history of how you know, white supremacy has operated. I just wonder if some of these people are not on the payroll. I just wonder. And it's a possibility. I just also think, too, that it's easy to spread that type of information to get a massive following of people because people naturally attract to fiction, science fiction, um, things that are not based in, in reality, things that you can't prove, mysticism, um, uh, metaphysics, uh, all these other outer world ideas, uh, aliens, reptilians, um, you know, <laughs> different dimensions, um, chakras, you know, all these different things that go into um, a very mystical way of thinking. It naturally tr attracts massive amounts of people. And I think that if that's the information that you're going to put out to the people, then that's your lane. But don't take a real event. It's dangerous when you start to take reality, like something that actually took place with George Floyd's murder, and then try to turn it into something that's fiction. And our people actually start buying into it and believing it. So I just wanted to bring that point up because we have to do better as a community of discerning our information that we take in and using better judgment and critical thinking when people present information to us when we don't have or they can't provide the facts to prove what they're saying. Are we doing right. and, 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 and the thing of it is almost is that you really you can't even you can't carry on uh, an intelligent you know, critical thinking type of discussion with these guys. You 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 really can't because you know they they they're gonna go straight to the gutter, and 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 try to and try to draw you into their orbit of ignorance. So it's a ter it's, it's it's a tremendous challenge, brother. Okay, I just I just wanted to pass this information along. Um, uh, on June the 3rd, I came in from a five-mile walk soaking in vitamin D in the Carolina heat, and I saw an email from our good brother, Dr. Kelly Harris, saying that the warrior scholar, Dr. Conrad Worrell, has transitioned to the spiritual world. Apparently, he'd been suffering 
from some illnesses for for a period of time. Uh, I met Dr. Worrell back in the uh, back in the 1990s. As a matter of fact, uh, you know he, he was a syndicated columnist. I, you know I was doing some writing at that time, and and we would help each other get our articles out into you know different newspapers. You know he got some of my articles in a paper in Detroit and some other places. Uh, I always enjoyed my conversations with him when we would meet at events around the around the country. And of course, you know, I went out and poured, you know, libations for him. He was actually one of the key people in, to convince me to go ahead and, and and join the Million Man March because I wasn't down with anybody calling for atonement. Uh, I did, that just didn't make any sense to me. But uh, he said, you know, that as nationalists, we had to try to make whatever kind of input that, that we could. Uh, I met him at, you know, at a meeting in, uh, in, out in L.A., and we had a conversation about that. Uh, he formed an organization and led uh, for several years called the National Black United Front, and this is what they had to say. As a scholar activist, Chairman Emeritus Dr. Worrell placed a meticulous focus on organizing African people, never too big to do the little things, passing out flyers, setting up chairs, and the like. While we believe in the collective, it is correct to say that more than any other single person, he's the reason that the National Black United Front has lasted for 41 years. So uh, Dr. Worrell born, Worrell born in 1941, part of that magnificent group of Africans born in the 1940s, Kwame Ture, Jamil Elamine, Angela Davis, uh, Amos Wilson, Marimba, Ani, Fred Hampton, you know, what a magnificent group of people we produced uh, in that generation between that 1925. If you take the whole the whole generation, 1925 to 1950, of course, you know, you start with Omar Wally in 1925, Dr. King, you know, 1929, you know, and you got, you know, the others, you know, Bobby Seale, Bob Moses, all these people born in the 1930s. I mean, it's just a just amazing group of people, and um, uh, Dr. Conrad Worrell certainly was a brother that uh, was in the struggle, and uh, we should pour libations to him, and and continue on along the lines of uh, scholar activism, warrior scholar activism that uh, the example that he set a model to emulate. Ashe. Ashe. In conclusion, men, I think, well, we know clearly that the line between reality and fantasy is blurred. Got people crying at a wrestling match. That's where we are. This has been the African Liberation Media of Baby Fahodier. Baby Fahodier. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not jobs, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die 
educated, and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world. 